Somebody's Luggage, a collection of themed short stories by Charles Dickens and other Victorian writers. Eminent London headwaiter Mr. Christopher has discovered and purchased a mysterious set of luggage that had been abandoned by its owner in the private hotel and dining establishment where he works. In specific items of the luggage, there is a set of handwritten papers, each containing a story written by the luggage's owner, who is known only to Mr. Christopher as Somebody. In this last story, Somebody finally makes his appearance. Episode 7, His Wonderful End, by Charles Dickens. You wish to see me, Mr. Christopher? Yes, Mrs. Pratchett. What are them things in 24B? Somebody's luggage. Whose luggage? Law! He was a smeary writer and wrote in a dreadful bad hand. Utterly regardless of ink, he lavished it on every undeserving object. On his clothes, desk, hat, the handle of his toothbrush, even his umbrella. Ink was found freely on the coffee room carpet by number four table and two blots was on his restless couch. He had put no headings to any of his writings. In some cases, such as his boots, he would appear to have hid the writings, thereby involving his style in greater obscurity. But his boots was at least pairs, and no two of his writings can put in any claim to be so regarded. So here now follows the writings what was found. Mon Dieu, Monsieur, I am in a state of desolation. The lamp maker has not sent me the lamp that I asked him to repair. Down she'd go, and you along with her. <laughs> and you too, Tom. Well, I don't know about that. Sailors ain't like passengers. There's the boats to cut adrift. Besides, I'm on deck and you'd be below, smothered like a rat <laughs> I am a young man in the fine art line. You have seen my works over and over again, have been curious about me and think you have seen me. Now, as a safe rule, you never have seen me, and you never will. Oh, come, come, old fellow, none of that. The smell of the place makes me sick. I get cramp in my legs from sitting on that high stool. Hold hard, Dick. I won't have you say another word. How dare you talk like that to me? My dear Billy. Don't you dear Billy me. We know it very well. You give a ball tonight. And from our house we can see the lights and faintly hear the music. Then, if I accept the loan of the beautiful china bowl, I must ask a favour in return. I will promise to perform it, Mr Vloridge. For I feel sure that you will not ask anything that I may not promise to perform. It may not have been here now perceived that I sold these writings, but I did. And they have been accepted, despite their smeary, smudgy presentation. Having parted with them on most satisfactory terms, I resumed my usual functions. Waitering. But too soon I discovered that peace of mind had fled from a brow that up till then, time had merely took the air off, leaving an unruffled expanse within. 
It were superfluous to hide it. The brow to which I allude is my own. Over that brow, queasiness gathered like the sable wing of the fabled bird. The reflection that the writings must now inevitably get into print and that the somebody in whose luggage I had found the writings might yet live and meet with them. The elasticity of my spirits departed. Fruitless was the bottle, whether wine or medicine. I had recourse to both, and the effect upon them upon my system was witheringly lowering. Whatever could I say if he, the unknown somebody, was to appear in the coffee room and demand reparation? One forenoon in this last November, I received a turn that appeared to be given to me by the finger of fate and conscience, hand in hand. I was alone in the coffee room and had just poked the fire into a blaze and was standing with my back to it. Mr Christopher, the head waiter? The same. Uh, the proofs? The proofs. A-Y-R. A-Y-R. And you remember? Was that his meaning? At your risk? Were the letters short for that reminder? Anticipate your retribution? Did they stand for that warning? I opened the packet and found the contents were the printed writings. In vain was the reassuring note for AYR, the publication called All the Year Round. It could not cancel the proofs. Too appropriate a name. The proofs of my having sold the writings. My wretchedness daily increased. I had not thought of the risk I ran and the defying publicity I put my head into until all was done and in print. And I could not give up the money to be off the bargain and prevent publication. My family was down in the world. Christmas was coming on. A brother in the hospital and a sister in the rheumatics could not be entirely neglected. And it was not only the inns in the family that had told on the resources of one unaided waiter. Outs were not wanting either. A brother out of a situation. Another brother out of money. Another out of his mind. And another out in New York. Though not the same, though it might appear so. These had all really and truly brought me to a standstill until I could turn myself around. I got Worse and worse in my meditations, constantly reflecting on the proofs, and that when Christmas drew nearer and the proofs were published, there could be no safety from hour to hour, but that he might confront me in the coffee room and, in the face of day and his country, demand his rights. It was November still, but the last echoes of Guy Fawkes had long ceased to reverberate. We were slack in the coffee house, several joints below our average mark and wine proportionate. So slack had we become that, having took their six o'clock dinners and dozed over their respective pints, bed numbers 26, 27, 28 and 31, had drove away in their cabs for their respective night mail trains and left us empty. I had took the evening paper to number six table 
which was warm and most to be preferred, and lost in the all-absorbing topics of the day, had dropped into a slumber. Waiter! Mm -hmm. I found a gentleman standing at number four table. Um, sir? He had one of those newfangled, uncollapsible bags in his hand. Which I am against, for I don't see why you shouldn't collapse when you are about it, as your father's collapsed before you. I want to dine, waiter. I shall sleep here tonight. Oh, very good, sir. Uh, what will you take for dinner, sir? Uh, soup, bit of codfish, oyster sauce and the joint. Thank you, sir. I rang the chambermaid's bell, and Mrs Pratchett marched in, according to the custom, demurely carrying a lighted flat candle before her, as if she was one of a long public procession, and all other members of which was invisible. In the meantime, the gentleman had gone to the front of the fire and laid his head against the mantelpiece. <sighs> his hair was long and lightish, and when he laid his forehead against the mantelpiece, his hair fell in a dusty fluff together over his eyes. When he then turned around and then lifted up his head, it all fell in a dusty fluff over his ears, giving him a wild appearance similar to a blasted heath. Oh, the chambermaid. Ah, uh, to be sure. Yes, I won't go upstairs now. If you will take my bag, it will be enough for the present to know my room number. Can you give me 24B? He went back before the fire and fell a bite in his nails. Waiter, give me pen and paper and in five minutes let me have, if you please, a messenger. Unmindful of his waning soup, he wrote and sent off six notes before he touched his dinner. Three were City, Cornhill, Ludgate Hill and Farringdon Street. Three West End. Great Marlborough Street, New Burlington Street and Piccadilly. I later interrogated our light porter. There was not a vestige of an answer from any of them. All booksellers. But before then, the gentleman had cleared off his dinner and his bottle of wine and knocked a plate of biscuits off the table with his agitated elbow, but without breakage, and demanded boiling brandy and water. Now fully convinced that this was somebody, I perspired with the utmost freedom. Waiter, a pen and paper, please. Hmm. <laughs> ah, yes. Oh, oh, yes. He then passed the next two hours feverishly producing a manuscript, which he then put in the fire when completed, and went up to bed, attended by Mrs Pratchett, who then came down. What happened? His eye was rolling into every corner of the passages and staircases as if in search of his luggage. And as I looked back while shutting the door of 24B, I perceived him with his coat already thrown off, immersing himself bodily under the bedstead like a chimney sweep before the application of machinery. After for myself the hours of that night, 
the next day was very foggy in our part of London, in as so much as it was necessary to light the coffee room. We were still alone, and no feverish words of mine can do justice to the fitfulness of his appearance as he sat down at number four table. Having again ordered his dinner, he went out for the best part of two hours before returning. Are there any answers to my notes sent last night? Uh, none, sir. Hmm. Bring me some maligotoni soup, the cayenne pepper and orange brandy. Feeling that the mortal struggle was now at hand, I also felt that I must be equal to him, and with that view resolved that whatever he took, I would take behind my partition, but keeping my eye on him over the curtain. Throughout that awful day, he walked about the coffee house, continually in search of any signs of his luggage. Half past six came, and I laid his cloth. He ordered a bottle of old brown. I likewise ordered a bottle. He drank his. I drank mine, as nearly as my duties would permit. Glass for glass against his. He topped with coffee in a small glass. I did likewise. We both dozed. Waiter! <laughs> My bill? The moment was now at hand when we two must be locked in deadly grapple. Swift as the arrow from a bow, I had formed my resolution. It was to be that I would be the first to open up the subject with a full acknowledgement and would offer any gradual settlement within my power. He paid his bill with his eye rolling about him to the last for any tokens of his luggage. The decisive moment had arrived. I took action. The proofs. Gracious heavens, what's this? Print? I humbly acknowledge to be the unfortunate cause of it. By hope, sir, that when you have heard the circumstances explained and the innocence of my intentions... Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, wonderful! How marvellous! What is your name, my benefactor? My, my name, sir, is Christopher. And I hope, sir, that as such, when you've heard my explanation... In print! In print! Oh, Christopher! Philanthropist! Nothing can recompense you, but what sum of money would be acceptable to you? Uh, sir, I assure you I have already been well paid, and... No, no, Christopher! Don't talk like that! What sum of money would be acceptable to you, Christopher? Would you find £20 acceptable, Christopher? Sir, I am not aware that the man ever yet was born without more than the average amount of water on the brain, as would not find £20 acceptable. But there you go, then. Extremely obliged to you, sir, I'm sure. But I could wish to know, sir, if not intruding, how have I merited this kindness? No, then, my Christopher. That from boyhood's hour, I have unremittingly and unavailingly endeavoured 
to get into print. No, Christopher, that all the booksellers alive and several dead have refused to put me into print. No, Christopher, that I have written unprinted reams, but they shall be read to you, my friend and brother. You uh, sometimes have a holiday? Never. Not from the cradle to the grave. Well enough. <laughs> but I am in print. The first flight of ambition emanating from my father's lowly cot is realised at last. The golden bowl forged by the magic hand has emitted a complete and perfect sound. When did this happen, my Christopher? Uh, which happened, sir? This. This print. When I had given him my detailed account of it, he grasped me by the hand. Dear Christopher, it should be gratifying for you to know that you are an instrument in the hands of destiny, because you are. Perhaps we all are. Oh, I don't mean that. Don't take that wide range. I confine myself to the special case. Observe me well, my Christopher. Hopeless of getting rid of, through any effort of my own, any of the manuscripts among my luggage. Send them where I would. They were always coming back to me. It is now some seven years since I left that luggage here. Left on the desperate chance. Either that the faithful manuscripts will come back to me no more. Or that someone less accursed than I might give them to the world. You follow me, my Christopher? Pretty well, sir. I followed him so far as to judge that he had a weak head and that the orange, the boiling and the old brown combined was beginning to tell. The old brown being heady is best adapted to seasoned cases. Years elapsed and those compositions slumbered in dust. At length, destiny chose her agent from all mankind and sent you here, Christopher. And lo, Casket was burst asunder, and the giant was free. But we must sit up all night, my Christopher. I must correct these proofs for the press. Fill all the inkstands and bring me several new pens. He smeared himself, and he smeared the proofs all the night through to the degree that when the sun rose, few could have said which was them, which was him, and which was Blot's. His last instruction was that I should instantly run and take his corrections to the printer's office. I did so, but they will not appear in print, for I noticed a message being brought round from Beaufort Printing House that the old resources of that establishment was unable to make out what any of his corrections meant, upon which a certain gentleman in company laughed and put the corrections in the fire. And so somebody and the written contents of his luggage were finally reunited in print for posterity and in full. Well, almost. Good evening, Christopher. Ah, good evening, sir. Will that be the usual room for tonight? And will you be dining with us again? In this concluding part of Somebody's Luggage, Mike Ayres' Mr. Christopher made his second and final appearance to wrap things up. In this, 
He was ably supported by the arrival of Louis Kiranidis as an eponymously Johnsonian somebody, with S.J. Vant again as Mrs. Pratchett. All other roles were played by members of this cast and production team. The episodes were adapted, produced and directed by Jim Newberry, with all sound and effects engineered and created by the excellent Robbie Burgess. Somebody's Luggage has been a joint venture between Revenge FM and Uptick Productions. <laughs>